Well, I hope, uh, let me say it this way. I don't like to leave. I would much rather remain right here in the pulpit. And yet, I know that it is necessary and part of the process. You sent uh, us to, to two parts of Africa to minister to two of our missionaries that are ministering on behalf of Christ and Timberlake Baptist Church in this part of the Art of, part of the world. So I am delighted to be back here uh, with you this morning. I missed you every day. I prayed for you. Um, know that you were in capable hands as far as the pulpit is concerned and leadership is concerned because I am fully aware that if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, Christ church would keep right on going and the world would keep right on turning, right? It's true. God uses us. He chooses to do that, but we are not indispensable. But that doesn't mean that that I did not miss you. Uh, we arrived back late Friday, and last week we had our family on three different continents, on Africa, Asia, and America. And uh, if you have a little thing on your iPhone that says, Find My Friends, it zooms out, it shows you where everybody is at, and we have one in China and one in Africa and one back in America, so at least two are consolidated again. So I mentioned the Killians and the Mosheras send their love. They're greatly encouraged uh, by, by for your care in sending us there. We took suitcases. Uh, we, we, uh, we took many suitcases and uh, provided some things for them. They're both doing well, and their ministries are, gro- are growing. The Lord is building His church, and He's doing it through simple people who are willing to surrender and serve, and we're privileged to be part of that process. Before I left the last Sunday, I was only gone one Sunday, but the one before I left, we, we turned to rejoice together in some fruit that God has borne in this church, uh, being Govinda and his family, and we were reminded of why we train and why we send. And Govinda was part of the many faithful men of 2 Timothy 2.2 2, that, that speaks about in the fruit through your work, not the only fruit, but, 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 but many. And we finished up the, the Gospel of Mark as far as we're going to, to go. Pastor Stephen then took us to the ascension of Christ. And many of you wonder where are we going next because we finished up Mark and we're doing Revelation on, on Sunday night. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a, of a preview, we're going to be going, Lord willing, to an exposition of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be doing that after what I'm going to cover over the next several Sundays. This morning... And the next several Sundays, we're going to, to, to look at how God has put together His church. You see the title, The Anatomy of the Church. This is going to be helpful to you. Some of it will be a reminder to you. It will also be a helpful reminder in light of the fact that we're working on an update to our church constitution. As part of our 10-year plan, this year... Three years ago, 2019, was the, was the year that we, we planned to tackle that. And we laid that out before you as a, as a church then, and it's been needed for some time. And some of the, the necessary areas that, that 
we're looking at or we need to add some things culturally. There's been lots of things changed from transgenderism to same-sex marriage, positions that, that our Constitution does not cover and it's necessary to cover. We've been working with Liberty Council on that. They have been a, a, a wonderful, wonderful help. We're also looking at beefing up the belief section of our, of our Constitution. For example, we have one sentence uh, on the doctrine of God, we're not looking at writing the Westminster Confession, or in our case, the Second London Baptist Confession, but we are looking to, to beef that up somewhat. And we're also looking at updating language and making clarifications on how we operate. If you pay attention, every year at the annual meeting, we vote on Pastor Brody as the Sunday school superintendent. And we've been doing that for 20 years or so, long before I came, because... He oversees the adult ministries, and, and that's the role that, that, that he's in. We haven't had that position for, for quite some time. None of that's bad. Uh, it was written for a solo pastor in a different era. It's boilerplate language in many churches, and it's, it's not bad. To prepare for that, that work, the pastors and the deacons spent the last six months of 2018 walking through 1 Timothy, Titus, and the book of Acts, reminding ourselves of what the Scripture says about the church structure and, and polity. And at the end of that, they set apart a, a subcommittee to look at, at what's written. I think I've got this up here for you. Yeah, what's written and what we do to make suggestions to the pastors and deacons who would then ultimately make suggestions to our congregation toward the end of of this year toward the first of, of next. We've, we've updated the church on that progress at least three times. We, we obviously told you, told everyone back in 2016, this was the year that we were going to, to do that. In January of this year, we reminded the church, informed them that the pastors and deacons had, had set apart a subcommittee to actually undertake the study of this process and then in March, Jim Warner gave an update and then in April, Rich, Rich Brown did. Now, what I've been asked to do is to walk you through the same passages that we went through as, a, as pastors and deacons, so we can all understand what the Bible teaches or be reminded, and that's the purpose of, of, this, of this series. We'll probably do some Q&As in the evenings after that. So that's kind of where we're going before we get to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, let me be particularly pastoral for a minute. Now, if you're visiting with us, what we are normally doing is grinding through verse by verse, word by word, line upon line, the Bible. But this is a, this is a series on, on, church, on church structure. Church structure is in the Bible. This is the pastoral part. And we need to look for the glory of Christ in the way that He's designed His church. Don't be tempted to check out because this somehow is not a message about how to live your life this week or about, or about missions. How you live and the success of missions is connected to a healthy church and a healthy church is laid out in the structure in the, in the scriptures. It amazes me how my heart wants to have an opinion about something that I don't have any desire to study. I'm sure you probably don't have that, that problem yourself. Don't be that guy, okay? Engage. Second, these kinds of things are normal and necessary part of church. 
including Timberlake Baptist Church. We have done this three times over our history. The last time was in 2003, just about three years before I came. And so it's a normal part of a church life. You have to do these types of things as, as the church grows and morphs and culture changes. And while it's normal, it's also something that the devil can get in the middle of and, and, and sow division if you're not spiritually mature in the way that you work through it. Now, as the writer of Hebrews says, I feel sure of better things concerning you. So I know that won't be the case. But we need to be on guard nonetheless. Here's my commitment to you. I hope this goes without saying. But let me just kind of lay this out there on the table. We will not do anything as a church body that our congregation doesn't see and doesn't approve after having the opportunity to understand it and see it. There are no, there's no arbitrary timeline. There's no agenda we're forced to follow. So we'll walk through all of this together. I don't believe anything any different today than I did when I came 13 years ago. I don't play games with the Bible. I don't play games with the church and we will not do that here. The commitment that I ask from you is that you be careful not to fall into any traps in the, in the process. If you don't understand, ask. If you don't like the end result of the majority, yield. If you want information, then come to the meetings and get the information. Don't create suspicion or negativity where there isn't any. As Thomas Hardy said, he had a friend who could go into any beautiful meadow and immediately find a manure pile. If you tend to be drawn to the manure pile, zoom back and rejoice over the, over the green meadow. Manure is what makes the meadow green to begin with, and we're all imperfect, and we all create some of that sometimes. So I'm not singling anybody out. I have no, no knowledge of any issues. I'm just being pastoral, knowing there's nothing new under the sun, and as you go through a process like that, those are things that you need to, need to say. Now with that introduction, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And beginning in verse 14, it's kind of a launch verse. I am very out of my element this morning. I am parachuting in the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 3. My mind is, is, is still somewhere in jet lag land. And I am going to take this verse and use it as an introduction to this, this series, which is going to be seven parts. How does God intend His church to operate? How is it led? By a single pastor, by a board of deacons, by elders, by the congregation? What does that look like? If you could answer that question, what does it look like in the life, the everyday life of the church? Does, does every decision have to be vetted by the pastor? Does the congregation decide? Is it just the big things? Who decides what's the big things? Probably more near and dear to my heart is, does the Bible give a definitive model that, that is prescribed? If so, what does that look like? You know I teach church history, historical theology. I, I can stand back and see the church getting to, to one side of biblical truth or the other and, and getting caught up in we want to do something new, getting caught up in we want to stay in traditions. And I could care about, I could care less about none of that. The only thing I care about is what does the Bible say and are we faithful to the Scriptures in the way that we practice it and the way that, that we do it. 
And so that last question, does the Bible give a definitive model? Is it prescribed? And indeed it does. The statement that I've used to summarize the biblical model is the church is pastor or elder-led, deconserved, and congregationally affirmed. That's what I wrote in the Q&A that was passed out to the congregation when I was candidating 13 years ago. That's what I've practiced since being here, and that's what I see the Bible teaching even today. The Bible describes the church in this passage as God's household, as God's building, God's temple. But it, the favorite, the favorite uh, illustration is, is that of a body, which is why we read 1 Corinthians 12. If you break down the three major features of, of the church's anatomy, here's what you will find. You will find visible leaders sometimes called elders, overseers, or pastors. That word is used interchangeably. And we'll do some messages on what they are, what they look like, where do they come from. Then there is the exemplary servers, or better known as deacons. Everyone is called to serve, but there are certain ones that do it really, really well, and they're called to do that specifically in the, in the church. And finally... There is the maturing ministers, that's the church body or the congregation. And I say that maturing ministers because the process of what's happening this morning in sanctification in your life is you are being built up, you're being matured. You're not mature yet, you're being matured, and you're, you're, you're being matured by the equipping so that you might be able to minister to, to other people. So you are the ministers, and you're being matured. And God has uniquely defined those parts as He governs His, His church. Now, before, we're going to do messages on all, of, all three of those. But before we get there, this morning I want to give you an introduction. I want to give you a big picture. I want to show you how all of those were developed. Those three, thing, those three parts were developed. And I'm going to do that by telling you what the Bible does not say. What the Bible does, does not say. Show you the big picture through some things the Bible does not say. Alright? Let me give you the first one. Number one. The Bible does not leave us unclear about how Christ's church operates. Look, if you would, at verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support, a ground of truth. And then he gives in verse 16... A, an early church confession or hymn by a common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed amongst the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into, into glory. The Bible does not leave us unclear on how the church of Jesus Christ should operate. Verse 15 tells us that Paul is writing... If a delay comes, if he can't get there to give the specific instructions that Christ has provided to him as an apostle, 
he's writing them down so that Timothy and the church at Ephesus would, would know, and therefore so we would know today. And Paul clearly gives some commands and some structure to Timothy. And it's so important that he's sending this letter, and it's full of all kinds of details. And Scripture is very clear on those three components that, that I mentioned. Pastors or elders leading, deacons assisting, and the congregation affirming. Other details like how many pastors or deacons do you have? Uh, how often should the church meet to discuss matters? Uh, do we have committees? Do we have trustees? All of that's left up to the individual church to decide. Those aren't specifics that the Word of God concerns, themselves, concerns itself about. What it concerns itself about are those three main structural components. And in order to see that, the reason that we're doing a topical message this morning is you have to look over all of the, all of the New Testament. The foundation of the early church developed over a 60 year period of, of time. I mean, the book of Acts that Stephen had you in last Sunday after we come through the Gospels of Jesus Christ uh, leading coming from his, his appearance on the scene, his perfect, sinless life, accomplishing the work that he was given to do. He willingly lays down his life. He dies. He's buried. He raises from the dead. He, he, he calls followers. He commissions them to go out into the world. He ascends into heaven. And then the book of Acts shows us how Christ fulfills his promise. Matthew 16. What's his promise in Matthew 16? I will build... My church, and Jesus is still doing that today. The book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit has been, has been doing that. So the book of Acts starts that process. It tells us the story. Then the epistles come along and give us specific instructions. And that means if you want to understand the development, how it begins and where it ends, where the Bible leaves off, you, you have to look at it in... In that, in that timeline. And as the gospel spreads, some features of the church anatomy become very clear. There's already given the three of them to. As you watch the church be developed, you will see local churches that have elders, plural, also called pastors, also called shepherds, also called overseers. They're word-based servants. They're the ones that God has set apart, called out of the congregation, to be word-based servants. Their primary task is to deal with the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to exhort, to rebuke, to correct, to refute error, to do all of those things that you see me and many of the other men doing. The church also has deacons serving those elders in the body. They're ministry-based servants. They're not primarily word-based. They're ministry-based. They're, they're serving and then the church is congregational in nature, meaning it governs its own affairs. There's no outside hierarchy that a local church is subject to. When the Apostle Paul writes, even being an apostle, he writes to the saints at Philippi. And he's writing to them. And because he's giving Scripture, what he writes applies to Ephesus and everywhere else, but he's writing to a local church. And that local church governs its own affairs. It's not subject to the elders in Jerusalem, although they may find things that are, that are helpful. And when you look at all that, how the, how the Bible develops is very 
very plain. Now, I skipped over some slides that I'm going to take you back to because I got them out of order. Again, think of it this way, right? Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, book of Acts, the church begins. The church begins to unfold. And when you look at the book of Acts, growth begins to happen inside the church. Growth inside the church brings a need for selected servants. You you know this passage well. It's Acts chapter 6. It's explosive growth happens. The first part of the book of Acts is John and Peter. They're, They're Jewish apostles. And they're focused on the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost grows. It explodes. And it it grows so much that there are specific needs in the congregation. The Hellenists and the Hebrews, they're widows that aren't being taken care of. Ministry-based things, important things, not word-based things, ministry-based things. And because of the growth inside the church, there is a need for selected servants. Unmet need create, could have created a divide in the church and meeting those needs would call the apostles away from the teaching and preaching. And so other men are set apart to meet that ministry need. Now remember, think of development. Think of how it starts with Christ and the apostles and then it grows. Acts 14 through 28. The growing of other churches not just growth inside one church, the growing of multiple churches, multiple congregations, brings the need for multiple elders to lead. Acts chapter 14 through 28. This is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. I don't know how you think about the book of Acts, but I think the Great Commission, because that's what you're supposed to think. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Peter and John, the first part. The Apostle Paul, going on his missionary journeys, the Apostle to the Gentiles, to the second part. And so the church moves from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you read the book of Acts, Peter and John fade to the background, and Paul comes to the forefront because he's the Apostle to the Gentiles. And it shows how the church moves outward beyond Jerusalem. Paul is launched on this missionary journey and God begins to plant more and more churches and the need for leaders in those churches to teach and to oversee and to shepherd are necessary. Look at Acts 14 on the first missionary journey. When they preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, God saved some, They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Preaching and teaching? We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders, plural, in every church, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the transfer of the leadership from the apostles to local church pastors. You remember when we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and prophets. There are no apostles and prophets today, regardless of what you see on the billboards or on TBN or where else. There are no apostles, no prophets today. They laid the foundation of the church. You see them active in the book of Acts. 
They had sign gifts, tongues, and all types of other things, languages, in order to authenticate that they were the apostles and the prophets. But as their need goes off the scene, the foundation is being laid, as the foundation gets laid, then there is a transfer that takes place. In Ephesians 4, as we looked when we looked at Govinda, that transfer is from apostles and prophets to missionary evangelists and pastors and teachers. They're building on that foundation and they're equipping the saints. This is the beginning in the book of Acts, the development where the handoff is happening from the apostles to the pastor-teachers, or the pastors and teachers, however you take that, that passage. Development, so growth inside the church, growth of other churches, and then finally, the growth of both elders and deacons require character qualifications to identify them. Jesus chooses the apostles. He knows them. He spends time with them. They are the ones that are, that, that are speaking and, and encouraging the church. And with the growth of many churches and the fact that the leadership is being transferred from the ones who lay the foundation to those who are building on top of it, it is vital that those men be qualified and have godly character. In fact, I think that you could probably see the vast majority of, of issues in the church today, in America, in China, wherever it is, is going to come back to unqualified leadership. Leadership that has character flaws or, leader, or, or has the inability to handle the Word of God. And as churches continue to be planted and elders and deacons are appointed within them to replace the apostles... Godly men must be chosen, so God spells out their qualifications. <clears throat> Did you know, prior to 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy, that you don't have a lot of qualifications there. I mean, you have Acts chapter 6, talking about these men are filled with the Spirit, but it's not until you get around 61, 62 A.D., 30 years. And there's a lot. This is toward the end of the Apostle Paul's life. There's a lot of missionary journeys already taking place. A lot of churches already planted where you find the character qualities spelled out. And you can see all three of these pieces as they're developed in Philippians chapter 1, again, toward the end of Paul's life. All the saints, that's the congregation, the overseers, pastors, elders, deacons, the servants, and both of those were part of the saints. And so you have all three. The Bible does not leave us unclear about the, the structure. It also doesn't leave us unclear about how he rules it. All right? So, number two and number three will balance themselves. Here's the first, here's number two. The Bible does not say the church is a democracy owned by the people. Look, if you would, at verse 15 of your passage. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. So, he's writing, 
so that we'll know how we're to operate, how we're to conduct ourselves. And look at the second part, in the household of God. He defines that household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. That says, specifically, the church is God's possession. The church is described as owned by the living God, and we don't have time to go in it, but that has all kinds of connotations from the Old Testament. The believers are members of God's household, and we're to act accordingly. That's what that passage says. Timberlake Baptist Church is not our church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not the future church. It's not the past church. It's, it's Christ. And our only task is to operate as members of that, of that household. Someone asked MacArthur one time how he was so bold in, in preaching biblical things or making biblical changes that people would get upset about or that they wouldn't agree with. And he said, simple, it's not their church. It's not mine either. This is probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of, of how God governs His church, at least in, in our circles. When we hear the word governance, we, we think of American government. That's our frame of, of reference. We, we think everything gets an up or down vote. Um, everybody has a say. But that concept is foreign to the New Testament. You have no rights. I have no rights. You have no agenda other than the Bible. I have no agenda other than the Bible. It's wrong to think of biblical congregationalism in the terms of three branches of government, as if I am the executive branch. I am President Trump this morning. It's wrong to think that you are the, uh, or the deacons are the legislative and judicial branch, and then you as the congregation are we the people. Nowhere is that scheme modeled in Scripture. It's not biblical to think in those terms. It's not biblical to think in terms of checks and balances, like, he's, like what is built into democracy. The congregation of a local church is self-governing. It's not a monarchy ruled by one. It's not an oligarchy ruled by few. It's not an aristocracy ruled by the finest. It's, it's not anarchy ruled by no one. It is the government by the members of the demos, of the body, which, of which elders and deacons are part of. And they're set apart in order to function in that process. The local church, you, the body, is the final court of appeals. There's no deliberative body outside or above the local church. The local church is sovereign to rule its own affairs. But it also has parameters. And those parameters are there are limits to that governance and there are leaders that operate. There are limits. Biblical congregationalism, which is what we practice, recognizes that the congregation is not an infallible guide. Let me say it this way. The voice of the people is not tantamount to the voice of God. When the people speak... It doesn't mean that God spoke. In fact, there are plenty of circumstances in church history where the people speak contrary to God. 
That role is reserved for, for God alone. We believe in sola scriptura, the Bible alone, which, which is our sole authority for faith and practice. We don't go by some Baptist handbook. We don't go by some confession. We don't go by tradition. We don't go by anything other than the Scriptures. You know this passage very well. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful. It's profitable to teach, to rebuke, to correct, to instruct in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's you, that's me, that's anyone, any believer, might be thoroughly equipped. The Bible is not only inspired, it's sufficient. It's what we need. It's, it's our foundation. H. Hodge said, Whatever God teaches or commands is of sovereign authority. The Scriptures of Old and New Testament are the only organs through which God conveys to us the knowledge of His will. Not popes or creeds or councils or still small voices or anything else. It's the Bible alone. And when we say the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice, what we mean is it's our ultimate God for what we believe. That's the faith part. And what we do, that's the practice part. So what we God tells us what to think, what to believe, and God tells us what to do. And all of that comes from the, comes from the Scripture. When we say that the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice, we mean that the Bible trumps man's authority or church tradition or our own opinions. We mean that we will allow nothing that opposes God's Word to dictate our actions or control our thinking. And so congregational decisions, many in the life of the church are called on to make decisions. They're not right simply by virtue of being made by the, by the congregation. And then there is a second parameter, and that's there's leaders. Wow. There are limits, and there are leaders. The limitation of the of the congregation is the Bible. And the other parameter is there are leaders. God sets apart leaders. Look at 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. I can remember in seminary that I had a seminary professor who must have been underpaid as a church said that that meant... If you were a good preacher or teacher, you should get a double salary. That's not what that means. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Watch this. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That says all pastors or elders, same word, shepherds, whatever you want to call it, bishops, overseers, all of them have oversight. They all rule. Let the elders, all of them who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. Whatever double honor means. All of them rule. But notice what else it says. It also says some will labor in preaching and teaching. Out of those overseers, some will be set apart to labor in preaching and teaching. Now, we normally think of a pastor, we think of someone in the pulpit and someone paid, right? Somebody who marries me, somebody who buries me, somebody who visits me in the hospital. That's what a pastor is. 
and hopefully preaches a good sermon every now and then. We think that a pastor is someone who is in the pulpit and somebody who's paid. But this says not all of the church's shepherds are in the pulpit and not all of them are paid. Did you ever think about that? Biblical congregationalism includes leadership and spiritual oversight by congregationally recognized elders, some of who are set apart vocationally, like me. I am paid by the church so I can give all of my attention and time to preaching and teaching the Word of God, a Word-based servant. But there are some who lead who are not paid by the church. We only currently have paid elders at TBC. But regardless of whether they're paid or not, the congregation is responsible to obey those leaders and submit to them. You know Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. You know what that says? That says God commands you to submit to your leaders, and it is beneficial if you're easy to pastor. I mean, that's the summary of that. If you are easy to pastor, that's good for you, because then they won't have to worry about you being difficult, and they'll be able to minister to you. That, that's a good summary of that of that verse. And so, the function, elders function most biblically in the context of a congregation, but congregationalism also functions most biblically under godly, wise, loving, qualified leaders. All right? Let me give you the last one here. The Bible does not give church leaders any authority Outside of the Scriptures. Boy, in my context, did I see this abused many times. I can remember listening to stories of conferences where church members would line up for five-minute increments or 15-minute increments so that they could get in to see Jack Howells, so he could give them advice on their life, on whether to buy a car or whether to allow this person to, you know, your daughter to marry this guy or whatever it is. I cannot express how, how repulsive that idea and unbiblical that idea is in, in a way that would, that would maintain my decorum. God has given leaders to the congregation. And while there are many passages like Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy, elders, overseers, their authority is not absolute. There's much confusion about biblical authority. And if you grasp what I'm getting ready to tell you, whether it has to do with submitting to your elders here, whether it's your husband at home, your parents, the government, whatever... It will help you, whether you lead, whether you follow, whatever it is. Because this this principle applies to everything. Pastors have no authority other than what the Bible explicitly says. If the Bible definitively states it, then a pastor can as well. But if the Bible is silent on it, then the man of God should be silent too. Let me say that another way. Pastoral leadership is limited 
pastoral authority is limited to the boundaries of Scripture. All authority is delegated authority. That goes for governments, for parents, for husbands, for church leaders. Husbands, when you read the passage about wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands, don't leave out as unto the Lord, because that's the key. The key is they're submitting to Christ. They're not submitting to you. You have no authority. To the extent that you go outside of the Bible, what the Bible says, which is Christ's authority, you violated that authority. You've overstepped your bounds. You have no authority. They're submitting to Christ as you, as the husband, speak to them what Christ says. The same goes for a pastor. I have no authority by my position. I have no authority by my abilities or person, by my, by my background, by my degrees, my whatever. The only authority that I have is zero. Christ alone has authority. But to the extent that I speak to you the words of Christ, that has authority, and you're called to submit to that. To the extent that I don't, you're not being rebellious in any way by not doing what I say. Because I don't have any authority over you. When Jesus said, we don't lead like the Gentiles, He means all authority is a delegated one from Him. He alone has authority. And that's not what the Gentiles practice. We are simply passing that authority on. There is no authority in a position or a person. That's what the Gentiles think. Lording it over someone is not holding authority and doing it in a nice way. That's... Gentiles do that. You can have benevolent dictators. Christ alone is the authority. Christ alone is king. Christ alone is the head of His church. And He speaks. And I just echo what He says. You just echo what He says as a husband or as a parent. Jesus, man, He alone has authority. The world thinks it's tied to a person or a position. And the Bible alone has that authority. I just point to that authority. And you don't have collective authority. We don't have collective authority as a church body either. Your authority is not what the group agrees with. It's what God invests in His Word, period. So the only role a congregation has is to confirm, yes, that's what the Bible says. Beyond that, there is no authority. A local congregation identifies its leaders. This is where we're going. But you remember, intro, big picture, and pre-specific messages on each of these three areas. A local congregation identifies its leaders, affirms its discipline, upholds its doctrine, resolves personal disputes, and determines church membership. Anything that comes before the church body as a whole should be edifying. And leaders are the one that make those decisions. Not everything comes before the church body. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, Let all things be done for edification. Whatever comes before the church body as a whole is to be edifying. And somebody has to decide, is this edifying to the body or not? There are things that the elders, the pastors deal with that you should never deal with. 
because it involves spiritual matters that would be inappropriate to deal with before the whole congregation. And there are things that the deacons will take care of that would be unwieldy for the whole body to take care of. What comes before you is that which is edifying. And Paul says that which builds up comes before the whole church. Same principle he uses in Romans 14, 19, Romans 15, 2, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The body must set people apart to lead, and leaders must seek counsel on matters that involve the whole body. And so as a church member, when things come before you, you should be thinking, is this edifying? And you should be thinking, what can I add or how can I help? Not, I want my voice to be heard. If you approach congregational matters, I want my voice to be heard, you are sinful before you ever even vote or open your mouth. If a leader brings something before the church, I want my way, they're sinful before they ever even place anything before the church. And so here's the summary. The Bible defines two visible roles in the church, elders and deacons. The task of elders is to lead, feed, and shepherd the flock. The task of deacon is to serve and allow the pastors to do that. The congregation, which both elders and deacons are a part of, set apart those leaders. And they affirm the direction and decisions as a body. The New Testament pattern for church polity is congregationalism. The Bible implies, number three, a plurality of elders or pastors in each congregation. Acts 14.23, Titus 1.5, James 5.14. Let's call for the elders of the church. I'll show you that when we get there. And number four, the Bible commands mutual submission as it relates to leaders in the congregation because we all have one authority to submit to. That's Christ and Christ alone. Churches are subject to the authority of the Bible brought through their pastors, and the body chooses its leaders, and those leaders are then ultimately accountable to the, the congregation. And the next time, we'll look at the leaders, the visible leaders that God sets apart. We'll look at where do they come from, what do they look like, how do you know one whenever you see it, and then we'll look at what they do. And I think that it will be very edifying for you. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you are listening to a message about the structure of the church, I want you to think about this. If you don't know Christ... I want you to think about how much Jesus cares for His church that He would be so deliberate to write down all of these details about her structure. And that same care that God has for His church, He can have for you. He already has had for you through the cross. And you can be part of the church. The church doesn't save you, it provides a, a way for you to serve. The only way that you get to heaven or into the church is through Jesus. You repent and you believe. And if you don't know Christ, 
may I plead with you, may I say to you, you are on a course that is going to lead you to stand before God one day. And you will see Him face to face. And there will be no scales of good or bad. There will be no excuses. You will be laid bare. All of your sin will be there and you will be judged. Unless Christ has already received that judgment. And indeed He has. And He offers you His righteousness and He offers you the payment of your penalty if you'll repent and you'll believe. And if you've already received that and you're part of the church, rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus is still building His church and cares enough for His church to lay out the specifics in His Word and then commit yourself to studying about it and obeying it and practicing it.